Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. What's up and welcome in. You're listening to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights at 7 on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. Open phone lines for you at 312-332-ESPN. 332-3776 is the telephone number. Hit me up on Twitter, twitter.com, tweetjhood. Also on Instagram, IGJHood. We'll hear from good old JR Jim Ross coming up with us at 935 as we do our Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. If you're a wrestling fan or know of one, tell them to come to their listening device, whether it's on the ESPN app or on good old ESPN 1000. Good old ESPN Radio 1000. And turn on Jim Ross and my conversation with Jim about AEW and what's going on in professional wrestling. We do it every Tuesday night. A half hour after SmackDown Live is over on the USA Network. It's over now, as a matter of fact. So that way, again, we'll hear from Jim coming up at 9.35 here on ESPN 1000. Also hear from Myron Metcalf, friend of the program. I love Myron. Myron is a sad Bucks fan because his team fell short of getting to the uh, NBA Finals. He is our college basketball analyst and expert on ESPN.com. We'll hear from Myron coming up in about seven, eight minutes right here on ESPN 1000. A couple of news and notes for you. First of all, uh, the Cubs, they're leading the Rockies by a score of five to three. That game's at the top of the seventh inning. The Sox had a nice lead against the Nationals. Now they're down 9-5. That game's in the top of the seventh inning. Here's a score for you, Brewer fans. How about this? How about the Miami Marlins at this point in time? They are beating the Brewers by a score of 15 to nothing. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> 15 to nothing. Yo, I can just see Bob Euchre right now. I know it is a, the salty dog that Bob Euchre is. I can imagine not very happy up there as the Marlins, the worst team in Major League Baseball with 21 and 36. They're the worst. Just ask Derek Jeter. 11 runs in the top of the fifth, and it's 15 nothing. That brought worse, and beer's not going down very well tonight. I can see Bob Euchre now. The Brewers are down 15 to nothing. I'm going to take a powder. Here's Jeff Levering. And then that'll be the end. He just leaves. He just, he just walks out and just goes home. The Brewers are down 15 to nothing. Here's Curtis Granderson. I mean, so he, I'm sure he's, he's not happy. So, Milwaukee. We're gonna do it. Give us any chance, we'll take it. We But not tonight. Your dreams are not coming true tonight. Um, this coming about Major League Baseball, I wanted to point out. So, obviously, what happened within the Cubs game with Albert Almora hitting that foul ball and hitting that young child, uh, devastating. Anytime that you see this, Major League Baseball, you got to be able to do something about this if you can. One of the things that we have here in 2019 is that people are so distracted. They're looking at their phones or talking to somebody, and they're watching the game. The game is almost a background. If I'm watching the baseball game, i got my head up. So I like to sit in the bleachers because I can see the ball coming. 
It doesn't matter what ballpark I'm in. I would, if I'm sitting in the bleachers and I and I hear the ball, I could be able to at least have some time to move out of the way. But some people that sit on the first base line, third base line behind the plate, they don't. They're not so lucky. They have got their phones. They're distracted or whatever. And Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred says he does not expect teams to make changes to the protective netting around ballparks during the season, although he expects conversations to continue about whether netting should be extended. How how back-assward is that? Honest to, honest to God. If this is any other commissioner, including Roger Goodell, they would make a, find a way to be able to protect their customers. Manfred's comments on Tuesday came less than a week when that young child I talked about was struck by a foul ball and hospitalized in Houston. It, it happens. I understand that. But you have to be more proactive than reactive with this. Baseball's been around for a long time. People have been hit with baseballs for a long time. Do you want your customers to be taken to the hospital to have the game stop because someone wasn't paying attention? Or a child, a child doesn't have the, the focus to be able to watch every pitch, which is wrong with baseball. <laughs> because it's a three-plus-hour ball game. You want some kid to be able to take score when he's four or five years old and be able to lock in? That's not what's happening here. Almora felt horrible about it. But Manfred said, look, I think it's important that we focus on fan safety. If that means that netting has to go beyond the dugout, so be it. Each ballpark is different. The reason why I hesitate with beyond the dugout, I mean, a lot of clubs are beyond the dugout already, but there is a balance here. What balance? What balance? The balance is to make sure that your consumers are taken care of. See, see, this is why I do the I love Lucy thing with Major League Baseball. You've heard me say this before, like, it's so far behind the times. Can't make change because baseball's always been like this. Baseball's always been where if, if a fan was to get hit in the, in the head, it's okay because that's baseball. Go to the hospital, have a hot dog, and have a concussion. That's baseball. No. Do what's right for your consumer. Does that make, does that not make sense? Do you want to do what's right for your consumer? Rob Manfred. Behind the times, like everything else in Major League Baseball, always last to, to not taking care of the consumer, just doing what they think is best. Yeah, you got to protect the consumer. You don't want those incidents happening at the ballpark. But that's baseball for you. Glad that you're with us here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Um, a couple other things, too. Just ancillary notes that I want to make a point about. I saw this uh, with the Los Angeles Lakers. So the Lakers have hired, uh, they've hired another assistant coach. And I saw this story and I thought, okay, Jason Kidd is going to be the highest paid assistant coach in the NBA. And I said, okay, there's a reason why he is, is because they're looking to maybe move Jason Kidd in that spot as a head coach after Frank Vogel gets fired after a couple of years. Lionel Hollins, who I've not seen since those commercials for Prilosec or whatever it is, You've seen those commercials with Lionel Hollins? Like, like, I think the majority of people don't know who it is, and I know it is him. It's him slapping high five to, to people like he's got some kind of heartburn or whatever. Lionel Hollins, the former Memphis Grizzlies and former Nets coach, is now part of the Lakers staff. <laughs> They're stacking a the deck, aren't they? Vogel cannot feel comfortable. And, and by the way, in the business of entertainment, in the business that it, where so many people are just paranoid, Believe me, I've been around here for a long time. There's a lot of people paranoid in, the, in entertainment. 
think about Frank Vogel. He becomes the, the head coach for the Lakers. And then Lionel Hollins is added to the staff. How does that make him feel? He's got, he definitely has some people that he can rely on, but you just know that they're itching to be the head coach of the Lakers. And, and I will make this transition with the Blackhawks. Under the radar, no one's talking about it, but the Blackhawks have hired Mark Crawford as an assistant coach for the team. He's 58 years old. He's with the Stanley Cup champion Avalanche in 1996. Why do you think Mark Crawford is part of the Blackhawks staff? <laughs> Can I tell you something? I remember when Dennis Savar was head coach for the Blackhawks, and Joel Quinville was just there with the, uh, with the clipboard. He's just there, oh, just kind of look over and oversee the organization. Organization. It's okay, Joel, just be around just to watch. I knew Joel's going to get that job. As a former head coach, he's just there with the clipboard, just overseeing. You knew that Joel's going to get that head coaching job, and he did. Three, three Stanley Cup championships later, there he is. Mark Crawford as not only someone that can provide a little bit of spark as an assistant coach because he's been there and done that as a head coach, look for Mark Crawford in three years or less to be the head coach of the Blackhawks. And that's not a bad hire, by the way. But I just I find that fascinating that anytime that you have an old head that comes in as, uh, as an assistant coach, you think, I think you know what that is. Mark Crawford should be a head coach someplace in the NHL. But he's an assistant with the Blackhawks now, so uh, it's interesting. Interesting to see how this all comes about. Glad you're with me here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Let us talk NBA draft. It's right around the corner. Let's turn to Myron Metcalf, my friend from ESPN.com. Covers college basketball like a blanket. Also heard here on the weekends here on ESPN 1000. And Myron joins me here on ESPN 1000. Myron, Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you as always, man. Let me uh, before I ask you about the NBA draft. I want to get your thoughts on what you've seen in the finals so far. Uh, series tied at one, and the walking wounded is there for the Warriors, but yet they find a way to win. Uh, what's what has resonated most about the series so far for you? Uh, that this is the best team we've seen since Michael Jordan's Bulls, and I'm not sure anybody why anybody doubted that. Um, and, and I guess I just always felt like their experience. And if you told me that Clay and Steph and Draymond were, were playing, I just felt like they would have a chance. I, I thought there was a lot of hype after game one. That was a bit overboard, I felt like. And I just think if you're Steve Kerr after game one and you look at the film and it's Pascal Siakam doing what he did, if you say to your team, look, that's what they needed in order to beat us, uh, I don't think they can do that throughout a series. And I think they were right. Game two, you didn't see that same Pascal Siakam. Uh, I just think the Warriors – just the best team I've seen since Jordan's Bulls, and they continue to prove that. Yeah, I, I just think that's especially that really is the embodiment of next man up, right? I mean, if Bogut yeah. is your best, is your third best center, Myron, you're in good shape. Well, yeah, and, and think about Bogut, who won a championship with them earlier, right? Andrew Bogut is coming off a stretch where he was the MVP of the Australian Basketball League, the NBL, uh, where RJ Hampton, the kid who decided not to go to Texas Tech or Kansas or Memphis and is going to play in the NBL instead. Andrew Bogut was the MVP of that league. He comes from there, comes to play with the Warriors. Let's say he plays two minutes or he plays 20 minutes. You get a guy like that, and you have a veteran with experience, and I think that helps. Okay, let me ask you something that no one's talked to you about. I think we might have talked about this okay. off the air, but I'm gonna, let me ask you about this because I, I want to get to the draft, but I'm wondering as a Bucks fan how you how would you take this? Okay, so... 
I was talking to Nick Friedel earlier when we were talking about what the East might look like next season because there's a lot of moving parts. And, you know, you don't yeah. know what Jimmy Butler's doing. You don't know what um, you know with uh, what's happening with Uncle Drew in Boston. There's a lot of different moving parts in the in the East. So, yeah. I want to want you to tell me: Is there any way that the Bucks can be able to increase, enhance what they have as a team through free agency? Because as is, it's a good team. But there's Aaron Rodgers. There's a guy with swag. Do they have enough off the off the court? on the court to be able to enhance what they have as a team? Uh, I think definitely. Now, free agency, they're kind of stuck because uh, you hope to keep Chris Middleton. But I think the biggest question right now for the Bucks is not free agency. It's can you keep Chris Middleton and Malcolm Brogdon? Like, if you get nobody else, you have a team that won 60 games. Mm-hmm. You have a team that had the best defense in the league. You have a team that at its best was top 10 in offensive efficiency. You just need Giannis to get better. I mean, that's the thing. But if you lose his shooters, if you lose a Brogdon or a Middleton, you've got to gamble between those two. That changes everything. Because a lot of people are saying, well, you know, Coach Bud comes in and changes everything for Giannis. Yes, schematically in a lot of ways he did. But he spread the floor, essentially is what he did, and capitalized really on Giannis' limitations. He's one of the most dominant players in the paint. But if Giannis continues to be that, like let's say let's say he never learns how to shoot a three. Let's say Giannis never becomes a jump shooter, never becomes a guy who's capable of impacting a game offensively from beyond six, seven feet, right? What do you do then? If you're the Bucks, can you continue to play that way and surround him with shooters or will he be exposed? As a Bucks fan, I'm pessimistic. I think last year was the window. Last year was the opportunity, and I think that will be the narrative going forward. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. Myron Metcalf from ESPN.com and ESPN Radio joins me, Jonathan Hood, on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. As far as the draft, with John Morant, because of the um, because of the surgery that he had, the minor surgery that he had, Myron, does that affect his draft status at all? No, it, it shouldn't. I mean, to, to me, look at Embiid, who doesn't play for the first two years. Ben Simmons, this is the first year. John Morant is good enough, man, to where – if you had to sit him for a year, you still pick him at number two. I had a chance to watch him live uh, when he played in Hartford in the NCAA tournament. And he just is a different cat, man. The biggest thing that caught me about Jive was how long he was and just how explosive he was. Like, he's just got a bounce and a burst. And he wasn't playing well against Florida State, and we were all on press row like, Man, this guy isn't shooting well the night before against Marquette or two nights earlier. He had a crazy game, triple-double, dunked on one of the Hauser brothers, Joey Hauser. Uh, and then against Florida State, he wasn't hitting the same shots. They obviously had were longer, more athletic. But then you look at the box score, and you're like, man, this guy's still, you know, double-digit assists. He's still making an impact on the game. So, like, I think John Morant, surrounded by NBA talent, uh, is just going to be a dangerous player in the league. R.J. Barrett is uh, projected to be third, and I, I, I like R.J. Barrett. I see him having a, a terrific NBA career. Not, not great, but I think just longevity. I see that from R.J. Barrett. What stood out most about his game? Uh, you know, when I talked to his dad, his, before Zion, there was R.J., mm-hmm. right? Like, R.J. was the dude. R.J. was the guy who led Canada to the gold medal in the U19 championships in Egypt, uh, beating the American team in the semifinals. R.J. was the top prospect 
Uh, I asked his dad, Rowan Barrett, who played on the Canadian national team with Steve Nash. I said, what's RJ's greatest quality? And he said, winning. And that sounds like a cliche, right? But legitimately, that's what it is. I just think RJ is the most polished player in this draft. Zion's the most gifted. Uh, John Morant's the most intriguing. But the most, to me, polished player is R.J. Barrett. And the idea that you might put R.J. Barrett around shooters, which he didn't have at Duke, uh, I just think he's going to be a guy who comes in right away and averages 12-13 a game, uh, just based on what he can do right now. Like, I think R.J. could have started for an NBA team last year in health. Not been a great player, but helped. I mean, if you look at Duke basketball without Zion, what they have, they had R.J., and there was a stretch with his shooting. I mean, it didn't end up this way. But there was a stretch, I want to say going into February, where he was making about 37% of his threes in ACC play. He had a terrible non-conference season, and he didn't finish well. But the middle of it was a pretty good run. So if R.J. can do that, uh, R.J. is going to be a pretty good player in the league. Myron, I, I set aside, I said this earlier, I set aside all the angst that Bulls fans have about the Bulls management, because it makes sense. It's like a broken record. I think it's clear from from your circles, from my circles, everyone around the league, how how the Bulls are perceived. John Paxton and Gar Foreman, with the one-loss record, the amount of injuries, everything else. My focus, you tell me if I'm wrong, my focus should be, and if you're a Bulls fan, you're, it should be how the team can be healthy. This has been an issue yeah. with the Bulls since Derrick Rose, the amount of injuries that they've had. I can't have a read on their core with Markin and Dunn, Levine, and others unless the team is healthy. How do you see the Bulls? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to be young. It's another thing to be young and injured. Uh, yeah, I don't know that we've had a full snapshot of this Bulls team. Uh, I don't know if we've come close to that. Uh, seeing them healthy uh, would be helpful. And then as they age and mature as well, so... I think this is a group that, yeah, you hope to see them continue to gel and finally get healthy. The Levine injuries, obviously that's a major issue. We know what he can be. At the same time in this league, man, you don't get a lot of time. So, you know, the the coulda, woulda, shouldas don't really work in the NBA. You spent that money on Levine. Uh, You've got to win now, it feels like. And you've got to pick the right guy at seven. And I don't know who that is. Like, I don't know if it's Kobe White. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if someone ends up falling there. But you, you got to hit that because that, to me, will play a, a major role in how you shape that backcourt with Chris Dunn and Zach Levine. Uh, if you can solidify that backcourt, that young nucleus, then you got a chance. You really do have a chance. And I think they have some intriguing pieces, even Wendell Carter. In it. I mean, they, they're a team that has an intriguing young core. But to your point, can you see this group healthy? And if you do, what happens from there? Uh, so I'll be interested to see what they do in the draft, but I still think, with based on age alone, this is a Bulls team that could make some rapid improvements if they make the right moves in the draft. Now, when I say rapid, I'm not saying a playoff team necessarily, but this is a team that could make some strides if they stay healthy uh, and add the right piece this summer. Well, I'll ask you about a couple of guys that could be there at seven, and I don't think these are misses. I just think that the core is what it is, and whatever you get in this draft, you hope to cultivate and be able to make into something. So I'll ask you about um, Darius Garland, the guard from Vanderbilt. He's injured, only played just five games. Well, what do you think his upside is? I think he's fascinating, man. High school, man. When you talk to college coaches about Darius, 
like especially college coaches who lost him, they were all like, man, this dude was the truth. Like, like he, he would have changed Vanderbilt. If Darius Garland plays, this is how good he is. Bryce Drew not only stays, but he probably gets an extension. Because I think Garland was that good. And you never hear about Stackhouse to Bandy. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how good he was. Um, so I think his explosiveness, his versatility, uh, I think he's going to be a contributor right away. I'm always afraid of guys with knee injuries at early ages. But if you're going to do it, you want it to happen now so you can bounce back. I, I think he's an intriguing player for for me personally, I've seen more of Kobe White at the collegiate level uh, because we didn't see Darius. And I think Kobe did a lot to prove that he might not have the ceiling of a Darius Garland, but in terms of a guy who's ready to play and contribute right now, I mean, he led North Carolina last year. And I think he's the kind of kid who can come in uh, and be an immediate contributor. So Garland is, to me, the guy you get if you're like, he might not be ready right away after the knee injury, but two, three years, he's going to look like a really good pick. But if you want someone to help now, I would consider Kobe White. I'll ask you about one other guy and Jackson Hayes, the uh, the big from Texas. Does he have enough versatility in his game for him to be a viable NBA player? Uh, I personally worry about projects, and I guess I worry about guys – you know, who haven't really shown this consistently. He was kind of a project in high school, kind of a late bloomer. He's got a lot of tools, right? He's got a lot of things that you'd want in terms of if you are building a player. But I can't tell you one thing that he can do really, really well at the NBA level right now. You draft Jackson Hayes, to me, if you can afford for him to take two to three years to develop some of the instincts you're going to need uh, at that level, knowing that this is a guy who really wasn't a big-time prospect until late in his high school career and is still kind of learning the ins and outs of actually the skill of that position. So you draft him if you've got time. If you don't, you better realize you've got a guy who I don't think is going to come in and be a star immediately. He's going to definitely need uh, a few years, I think. Byron, lastly, I want to get your perspective on something. Uh, we talked about this in our in hour number one about the word owner in the NBA. You've seen this story, right? Yeah. Where there, there are some NBA players, and I know that Draymond Green talked about this on the shop, that he's not not necessarily great with the word owner in a predominantly black league. Um, some thoughts on the jump about this. I always feel like if there are enough players that feel that way, and there seems to be like there's a growing number of them, that it's worth looking at. And I know the Sixers are one of the teams that have changed it. I had written a story regarding Josh Harris, and I called him an NBA owner. And someone from the Sixers reached out to me and said, we're not calling him an owner. We're calling him a managing partner. Mm-hmm. So they've already taken that step. Well, if Jamon owned a part of an NBA team with LeBron, he would be standing up there at the press conference, me and LeBron are owners. <laughs> so, so people got to make be clear of what they mean when they say that. So some thoughts there from Steven Jackson and Jackie McMullen on the jump on ESPN. I said earlier that, um, you know, if you want, if you were a player and there are owners in the league, the reason why they're owners, Myron, is because they earned the right. However they did, they own the right to be able to be called an owner of a franchise. I just think that even in 2019, uh, if you are a player of color, if you don't like the term owner, then you should own something yourself. I know one thing. If I'm a player in the NBA, I don't feel like I am a slave. I'm not an indentured servant 
to anybody yeah. that owns the NBA. So I, I, I'm pushing back against that. You, I don't think I'd, as a player, I'd be so sensitive to that. What I would do is I would strive greatly to be able to be an owner myself so I can have that title. Yeah, Draymond in his next deal is probably going to be eligible for at least that $170, $180 million deal, if not more. Might be $200 million plus. He's probably going to get. My, my guess is he owns something. I mean, he may not have a foundation or a, you know, but, but he owns he owns things. I just think we got to get to a point where we go, where is the fight, right? And, and where do you invest in the fight? Like, what's the real fight? Uh, I guess if you want to get on the term like that and turn it into something, okay. But the NBA is not the league where you bring up that conversation, in my opinion. I mean, I feel like that's been one of the more progressive leagues of them all. Uh, the ownership group with the Wards has obviously built a new $2 billion arena and kept that group together. I just don't think that's the fight, right? I, like, I get being asked about it and wanting to make it a thing. I just don't think that is your fight if you're Draymond Green or anybody else in the league. Uh, players have never made more money. There are 133 players in the NBA this year making $10 million or more per year. All right. So when Shaq played in 01, there were 25 guys like that. So I don't know if that's the fight. I just don't know that you're going to get a lot of public support. I don't even know if you're going to get league wide support for that. And how often do we care about NBA owners in the first place? The NFL, we do. Mm-hmm. They run everything. But NBA owners, like, how often do we really care unless they're Mark Cuban or something like that? And they're at every game. We don't really talk about it. So I don't know if that's the fight. The changes in the street, not necessarily with NBA owners for me. Yeah. You know? I, yeah. <laughs> like, it's just one of those things, man, where you're like, really? Yeah. We're fighting about this is what we want to do? You know? Yeah. All the things we can bring up, this is what we're going to do? I just don't. I don't see who wins here, man. I don't see anybody winning in that conversation, person. Myron, as always, I appreciate your perspective. Looking forward to the draft in 15 days. All right, man. Thank you. All right. It is Myron Metcalf from ESPN. Radio and also ESPN.com. Follow him on Twitter at Metcalf by ESPN for the latest on the draft and college basketball. Ah, got to ask him about the Big Ten commissioner. Got to ask him about that. A change at the Big Ten. No more uh, Jim Delaney, someone that was the CEO of the Vikings for a long time now in the mix as the Big Ten commissioner. We'll get to that during Big Ten week, I'm sure, uh, because that's right around the corner as well for our Big Ten media days. All right, you know what's coming up next, right? If you're a wrestling fan or if you know of one, tell them to come to their wrestling device because to their listening device or their wrestling device because coming up. <laughs> a lot of words. Both works. <laughs> yeah, it's a, lot, a lot of words. A lot of words. Come to your wrestling device or your listening device because good old JR Jim Ross is coming up next for Tuesday. Wrestling Tuesday. It's coming up. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. Tuesday. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event of the evening for the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship. Wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, our first event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 15-minute time limit. There ain't nobody, there ain't nobody in wrestling who can make me quit. And that's the bottom line. Tuesday. We are what wrestling's all about. New York City here. Chicago here. Jamie on my left. Linda on my right. 
but I'm not telling any of the girls who I'm going to give it to in Chicago until that night. Tuesday, wrestling. Tuesday returns to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. It is Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday, with me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Do not forget to follow Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday, a brand new Twitter page for Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday at Wrestling TWT. At Wrestling TWT, where you can follow along for Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday, we give you all the information you need in professional wrestling slash sports entertainment right here on ESPN 1000. We do it every Tuesday at 930. Also, Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday has its own YouTube page as well. YouTube.com. Look for Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. We have interviews and conversations that you may have missed. It's already up there. Subscribe, download, check it out. Also, the Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday podcast. It's available for you wherever you download your podcast. Look for Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on Apple Music. Apple Podcast, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, wherever you download your podcast, look for Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. So you're all covered. YouTube.com, Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday, and also wherever you download your podcast, check it out. Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Please be joined by the WWE Hall of Famer, NWA Hall of Famer, and now the voice of all elite wrestling, good old JR Jim Ross joins us on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. With me, Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app, All Elite, brand new wrestling product. They had their pay-per-view in Las Vegas, double or nothing. Jim, as always, we appreciate your time. Tell me what about the preparation. What was the preparation like to be able to broadcast AEW's first pay-per-view event? Well, there are a lot of talents uh, on the card that I was not overly familiar with. And uh, so between Alex Marvez and Excalibur, uh, they really uh, helped bring me up to speed, especially Alex. Alex uh, put his newsman, uh, you know, uh, reporter hat on and got some great data, and we compromised on some the show sheets I'm used to getting and uh, with notes. Now, it used to be me just writing them out, but uh, I figured if Alex did it, he could uh, would check it off. And everybody could use the same documents in that regard, and plus what they brought with them. So Alex is a big help, and... Uh, and the and Excalibur as well, because some of these talents that had not had mainstream exposure, and you know, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, my last year of working at WWE, I didn't have an overwhelming uh, itch uh, for the product from anybody. I wasn't, well, I wasn't working, so it was just a matter of getting through the year. Mm-hmm. But uh, but both those guys, they're I'm really blessed to have two smart partners. They like prep work. They're very articulate, educated guys. And uh, they're going to help me get better, I think, in that respect. Uh, but they're younger, and uh, I'd like to tap into their enthusiasm, and hopefully we can help each other. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned in the broadcast some nerves in the back from some of the wrestlers before the show, the whole staff. Well, could you give a, take us back behind the scenes and how people were before the show? Well, I think the easiest way to put it is everybody seemed to be very uh, caffeinated. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they uh, they say to me, uh, or energy drink, or whatever it may be. It was just one of those days where you could feel the anticipation in the air. You could feel that everybody had, uh, in their own mind, had had uh, validated themselves being there. There's, I'm sure, some self doubt. 
in getting booked on this card for some of them because they just haven't had that level of experience. Uh, but they, everybody seemed to be eagerly anticipating the opportunity. And I, I like that. It was uh, refreshing. Uh, it's a different uh, chemistry in that locker room than I've been in maybe ever, but certainly for years and years. So that was kind of fun. But I just think the overall uh, anticipation, uh, big stage deal. And, you know, so my big job before the show is to, uh, I shot the breeze to everybody there and I encouraged them to have fun and, and uh, have a match that people are going to talk about for years to come. And it's up to them. So, uh, and they all, and I, I thought they rose to the occasion pretty good. We didn't have any stinkers, I don't think. So no. uh, it, was a, it was a hell of a solid show to everybody's credit. And you got a walkout. No security, though, but you got a walkout. <laughs> By yeah. God, you got a walkout, Jim Ross. Yeah, man. Uh, about that, I, I told uh, that was Cody's idea. And uh, so it was like so I said, well, JR had it in his contract. Well, that's, that's funny <laughs> to even think about, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, so, uh, but nonetheless, that was his idea. And, you know, where we, uh, we pre taped it. And where I was when it aired, I, I'm not sure I, how, how, I, how it, it sounded, but the crowd seemed to seemed to like it, and it was a nice little surprise. And that's what this show is about, largely. You know, there were, there were some, a lot of surprises, small ones like me that people knew I was going to be there, uh, and then others like uh, John Moxley, who, you know, came out at the end of the show that I had no idea it was coming, so that was, that was a good one on me, I guess, but mm-hmm. I loved it that way. I told somebody uh, that it was, I felt like, maybe SI, that I felt like it was uh, like, the feel was like a Foley getting tossed off the cell because I wasn't aware of that either. And then uh, when Moxley came out through the crowd, uh, that was news to me. Now, obviously, I knew that they'd been talking and he was probably going to join the team. I just wasn't sure where or when or how. And uh, the way they did it was uh, spot on in my view. Jim Ross with us on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app also on the Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday uh, podcast as we talk about the importance of Chris Jericho, Jim. I just think that just watching his interviews and listening to what he had to say, there's a guy that's always willing to reinvent, and I appreciate that over the years. He, I, what, do you, what do you think of the importance of Jericho to AEW as a company? Well, if I equate it to a, a baseball manager, I would say you got a player that is uh, can play every position. He can bat wherever you need him to in the lineup to be most productive. If you need to drive home runs, you need to lead off, uh, whatever. Uh, he, he has proven to be a proven commodity year after year. And you're right, uh, John. He's so good at reinventing. It takes a lot of courage uh, to reinvent, especially uh, in an entertainment world. Uh, and athletic world where you're used to doing something a certain way and he was really he's been really good at changing his uh, philosophies to some degree tweaking I guess is a better word because mm-hmm. his philosophies haven't changed that's the great thing about his game his game is always going to be solid logical and physical you know he's, he's one of those guys that's, been, that's known to uh, not hurt people but you know he's there uh, so I kind of like that and of course he, they got to know Kenny's nose got to know where he was very well in that match as he broke his nose in the middle of it and, and hey hats off to Kenny Omega man he uh, showed if anybody had any doubts he was a finesse only a finesse guy I should have answered all your questions he's a tough guy he's a very tough guy I admired him battling through because he knew the importance of his persona and his role in the closing moments of this massive show and he pulled it off he, 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 he played through it and I have great respect for that 
there's nothing like great storytelling in, in the business, Jim, as you know. And to be able to see Cody versus Dustin Rhodes, what it meant to see those two uh, going after one another, I just thought it was a great story. Then you get the match on top of it. I just thought that uh, it, it's hard to find a dry in the house, I'm sure, in Vegas, just to see these two be able to go at one another. Yeah, it certainly was. You know, Dustin's been very, very proud of that outing. You know, before the show, Jonathan, I, uh, of course, your friends can be really unique. They look at you, you think they're, or they think they're looking out for you. So my friends that read the message boards, which yeah. I do not, by the way, right. wrestling message boards, I'm not against them. I'm not nothing. I'm nonplussed. I don't read them, so no issue to me. I'm not on a revolver or anything. I'm just not, I just don't care to. Uh, but nonetheless, Apparently, it was on the message boards that, you know, AEW made a mistake, hired JR for, you know, this big contract, blah, blah, blah. He's too old. And so I, I battled through my, with myself through that, getting ready for the show, that you know, maybe some of these guys are right. You know, maybe I, I have lost it. I didn't work much last year. I was 67 years old. I never, never tried to hide that. But one of the things that my age did strike a chord with me on was the, my memories of Dusty. Uh, you know, he and I were friends for over 30 years. And we were good friends. And, you know, we had a lot in common of being Oklahoma, Texas guys and football fans and all that good stuff, knowing so many of the same people. And so, you know, Dusty came through. They really learned a lot with Eddie Graham. And, and then Bill Watts was a booker in the American Dream, so he learned a lot there. So there's a lot of similarity in how we were both taught. Cowboy's my guy. Cowboy's his guy to a certain degree. He had others, too, mm-hmm. as did I. But nonetheless, that's where my age really uh, – tap me on the shoulder because all of Dusty's memories are so vivid and then I'm thinking you know during the match you know, I got lost in the match but uh, afterwards I was thinking man the dream's going to be he's going to be smiling about this man because that's they told an amazing story that was logical that was smart uh, strategically and creatively uh, on, spot on I don't know how they could have had it. it's the best it's the best favorite match I've called in a long long time and I had to stop and think when the last one was it was kind of on that level i can't think of it off the top of my head so it's a very special match because of the, the, their their father you know somebody told me that they didn't realize they were half brothers you know they never lived together mm-hmm. and they, they, cody's 33 dusty's dustin's 50 so uh when when uh you know dustin was almost out of high school when cody was born and so they were, they were never that close and that's all true but they, they now they've made a great leaps to get that rectified and they i think they have and of course, you saw Saturday night, that hug at the, end of the end of the show was not, they didn't rehearse that. They didn't have a writer for it. It was real, and I loved it. Yeah, it was great. I, I really enjoyed that. That was probably my favorite match in the car, Jim. I really enjoyed that a lot. Uh, by the way, I've never seen a car with so many brothers on it because we got the Young Bucks, we got the Lucha yeah. Brothers, we got the Rhodes Brothers. But, I, um, you know, we talk about reinvention. I talked to you about this before. You know, I, I saw Young Bucks when you were calling New Japan Pro Wrestling. That's when I got a chance to see a lot of them. And I just thought, man, everything is just perpetual motion. Can you tell a story? Can you just slow down just a hair a little bit? And I'm seeing this the Young Bucks match I saw against the uh, the Lucha Brothers showed me a second and third gear for the Young Bucks. It wasn't completely 100% flying. It was guys being able to tell a little bit of a story and slow down a little bit. I think that's some maturation from the Young Bucks. Do you see the same? Absolutely. Uh, you know, when they were very entertaining, very rock and roll express-like, Hardy Brothers-like in their younger days uh, when I first saw them. And I thought, boy, these guys have got some great traits and, and 
and instincts. I think that's far more impressed their instincts, which speaks to their wrestling acumen. So, uh, but I, I can tell you that through the three years or so that I did New Japan Wrestling on Access TV, that I could see them get better and better every time they, they come around. They, they, they started. You know, they were doing great. Uh, I think when Matt, for a long time, there was had this uh, selling his back injury thing, and that they helped to tell so many great stories. When I saw them in, in uh, I think it was the uh, Cal Palace. Uh, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And we were chatting, and I said, "Man, you said you guys have slowed down just a little bit." It allows the announcers to catch up with what you're doing and, and draw the audience in even even farther, uh, and and embellishing put the great uh, lyric to your music, so to speak. And they uh, uh, they appreciate the feedback. They knew I've been paying attention, but they they can do. They they had a great match with the Lucha Brothers on uh, Saturday. I had never called a Lucha Brothers match. I'd watched some, some tape. Uh, but you know, it was everything I thought it was going to be. It gave me hope, Jonathan, that tag team wrestling can can really be good again. That, there, that there's plenty of great tag team wrestlers or potential tag teams, and we know that there are fan base that enjoys tag team wrestling. They just haven't seen an overabundance of it on the top level of major cards in a long, long time. So maybe the the, the Bucks leading the way. Because, look, as they get better, you got one is 33 and one is 29. I think that's about right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's, it's inevitable. They're going to continue to get better. Because the, 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 what they get better at is the psychological part of, the, of their work. Because if you just get better with, with experience until you stop you stop wanting to learn. And they don't strike these two guys that want to stop wanting to learn. They seemingly always are looking to get better. And before it's all said and done, at the end of the day, uh, they'll be spoken of were the greatest tag teams in the history of the business. I really believe that they just got to stay healthy. And uh, but boy, they're 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 really special. I'm telling you, they're really special. I I haven't seen teams like with well, that much chemistry. Like I said, since the Midnight Express uh, and a Rock and Roll Express type thing, uh, Tully and Arn. There's a few teams that had that natural chemistry. And them being real brothers, not wrestling brothers, uh, they they got natural chemistry. Jim, um, yeah, John Moxley coming out uh, toward the end of the the show was just tremendous. I, I think that one of the things that resonated with me watching the broadcast is even before he came to the scene in Vegas that he had a video out on his Twitter, and, and I think that videos traditionally, at its core, uh, and wrestling are synonymous to have videos or video packages to try to explain what the what the character is. John, it seems like he really is reborn. He seems like a completely different guy. And I just think that him being out there, you can just tell that he's into it. He's looking forward to being in New Japan and being AEW. You can see the fans are just rooting for him because he feels free. John Moxley is uh, celebrating his new lease on his professional life Mm -hmm. with all the information and, and skills that he's developed over his career as an indie wrestler going through the performance center i remember uh dusty Rhodes and i ironically calling a match uh i guess it's probably the old facility i'm sure it was there on dale mabry in tampa where uh it was, so it's a florida championship wrestling show before they changed it and uh we both were i think as a matter of fact i remember now it's very vivid he worked with, with uh, uh william regal right and they had a hell of a match. Somebody go find it and look at it. It's a really cool, cool uh, match to watch. But it shows you how much potential he has 
uh, because he was in there with a, one of the greats, in my view. I, always, I love Regal's work, and it's in and out of the ring. Uh, he's a big gift to WWE. I'm, I'm sure they realize that. Uh, because a lot of those talents in the performance center are there because of Regal. Uh, and it's sharp eye of scouting. But I, Dusty and I call that match. We said, man, this kid's got something special. And both of us, they're thinking the same damn things. Ironic. He reminded both of us, for whatever reason, of Terry Funk. Mm-hmm. And anytime you can naturally be compared to Terry Funk, not you're playing the Terry Funk character, or you're doing a Terry Funk impersonation like I do in my podcast from time to time. <laughs> right. uh, I'm talking about being in the ring. He's natural. His, his, uh, he was loose. Uh, he, he, when, he, when he got serious, he was really serious. He had great facials, great body English, and he seemed to be fearless. Uh, so there's a little to me. Uh, I, I told uh, somebody the other day, I said, he reminds me a little bit of Dr. Brian Pillman. He reminds me a little bit of, uh, of uh, Terry. And there was somebody else I was thinking of, but it, just at various times. So everybody that he's reminding me of, his own natural actions are stars. The thoughts there from good old JR Jim Ross. You can hear the rest of that conversation. Follow me on Twitter, Wrestling TWT. Also, go to the podcast. Here's another great conversation with Jim Ross. It was great. We got a lot more to talk about with AEW and what's going on with that company. All right, our thanks to Sean and Felix on the other side of the glass. I will talk to you Thursday with another edition of Under the Hood with John the Hood with me right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Jonathan Hood. I'm so good. On ESPN 1000.